0: Good morning again. It's good for us to gather again in this place in order that we might encourage one another, especially at this time of year when we set apart a particular day to remember and celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we'll be doing on Tuesday. Now, while the birth of Jesus Christ is what lies at the heart of the season that we call Christmas, if you're like most people, you will typically spend much more time preparing for and participating in the many cultural accretions that have become attached to Christmas, then you'll spend reflecting on the true nature of Christmas itself. Now, don't get me wrong, I think it's perfectly fine to participate in and enjoy many of the traditions that have grown up in and around this season of the year. I'm not throwing water on that uh, at all. But since the emphasis typically and overwhelmingly lies on the cultural side of things, I want us to take a few minutes this morning to think about some of the spiritual realities that lie behind Christmas, starting out by focusing on this passage from John's Gospel. Before we do that, let's pray together. Our great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you now with genuine thankfulness, with sincere humility, asking that you might yet again shower us with your blessings especially the blessing of insight and understanding. Help us to get the meaning of these important words that we are about to read and that you authored and then preserved for us over these many centuries. Father, may it be the case that we not only get these words, but more importantly that these words get us, that they get beneath our skin, behind our defenses, and find their mark, molding and shaping us in whatever ways you see fit. And we thank you in advance for all that you will do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. As we think about these verses this morning, we're going to focus on uh, three things. The relationship between Jesus and God, the relationship between Jesus and humanity, and the appropriate response that's called forth by those two realities. Firstly, I want to think about this relationship between Jesus and God. Focusing on just the first four verses for the moment, there are a number of things that we see here that tell us something about the relationship of Jesus to God. For starters, in verse 1, we see that Jesus was in the beginning with God. Now, as you have likely noticed, the passage does not actually say Jesus. It says the Word, which is just a unique way that John refers to Jesus. We'll say more about that in a moment. But for now, just remember that when John talks about the Word... In these opening verses, he's talking about Jesus. And what does he say? He says that the word, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. In other words, Jesus is as eternal and as timeless as God Himself. That's what this opening phrase is telling us. But it's saying more than that. It's saying not only that Jesus is eternal and timeless as God is, He was and is in fact God. He was Himself Divine, And we see that at least two ways in this passage. We see it firstly and most obviously because of what verse 1 says. The very plain and straightforward assertion that the Word was God. But the other way that the passage makes this point is by imitating the whole creation motif within the passage. In other words, it's no accident that John opens his gospel with the words in the beginning. He's making a point here. Not only does he use phrases like, in the beginning, he also talks about light. And he talks about life. And he talks about darkness, etc. All of those things that are found in the opening imagery in the book of Genesis. So what's John's point? Well, simply this. All that God did back then, all of the good things he created, all of the provisions he made, these same things are to be found in Jesus in the same sort of way and in the same measure. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, says John. John is clearly paralleling the activity of God in Genesis with the activity of Jesus. Why? I think at least in part, it's because he wants his readers to see that Jesus was and is God. But there's still more that John wants us to see here. He's not finished on this point just yet, because while Jesus was God, he's also said to have been with God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, John wants us to see two things here, at least on that. He wants us to see that Jesus is God, and is one with Him of the same substance. At the same time, he wants us to see that there is a distinction between Jesus and God. That there's a unity, but there's also a distinction. He was God, but He's also with God. In short, what we have here is a reference to the Trinitarian nature of God. Of course, the Holy Spirit's not mentioned here because it's not necessary for John's point just now, but the mechanics of that are just the same, and they're all here in this text. That God is one, and yet exists in more than one person. Three, in fact. Thus, Jesus is identified with God, and at the same time, distinguished from Him. Much more could be said about that, but we see the early we see traces of that here, and that traces of that theology of the multi-person nature of God. The second thing I want to think about this morning is not only the relationship between Jesus and God, but also Jesus and the rest of humanity. What do these opening verses tell us about that? And let me highlight two things on that. One thing that these verses tell us clearly about Jesus' relationship to humanity is that he lived as one of us. Because he was one of us. Verse 14 says it very succinctly, I think very clearly. The word became flesh. And the word that is used here for flesh is the commonest of words. It's a very earthy word. And the intention is to communicate that Jesus really did become like us. (coughs) Just like us. Uh, He had elbows and armpits and facial hair and even bowel movements that's what John is trying to get across here. Jesus didn't just appear to be like us. He was exactly like us. Took on flesh as we have flesh. So Jesus lived as one of us, but the reality of his human flesh, notwithstanding, it's also true that he lived as God in the midst of us, among us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word therefore, dwelt is the word for tabernacle. If you, and you, you could actually translate it that way. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, if you know anything of your Old Testament history, that's a significant statement. Because in the Old Testament and under the leadership of Moses, the people of God had a tabernacle, which was a portable temple, and it was the place where God would come and meet with his people. And so given the background that, that background, John's choice of words here, To say that Jesus tabernacled among us seems to be fairly deliberate. When he says that Jesus uh, tabernacled, he's saying that Jesus is now the place where God and His people meet. Jesus is the holy place where God and His people meet. Not a temple, not an external structure, but a person in Jesus. And how could that happen? Well, only if this one who was fully human was also fully God. And so in the human Jesus, we have the fullness of God being revealed as He dwelt among us. Indeed, this reality is underscored by the very last phrase in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, which is a reference there to Jesus, He has made Him known. He has made Him known. And the word which is translated made him known, the Greek word there, is one from which we get the word exegesis. In other words, you can say that Jesus is the exegesis of God. He has explained God. He has clarified God. He has illustrated God. He's revealed God. And made him known and knowable in a way that he'd never been known before. Which is why John applies this very unique label to Jesus, calling Him the Word. Why? Because Jesus did what words do. Think about it. What what are words? What functions do they have? Among other things, they're what a person uses to reveal what he or she is thinking. Or who he or she is. Jesus was the ultimate Word that revealed God like no other Word that God had spoken. There's a song by a writer named Michael Card, the lyrics of which express that reality very well, I think. Um, The song's called The Final Word, and the part of the lyrics go like this, You and me, we use so very many clumsy words. The noise of what we often say is not worth being heard. But when the Father's wisdom wanted to communicate His love, He spoke it in one final perfect word. He spoke the incarnation and so was born the Son. His final word was Jesus. He needed no other one. He spoke flesh and blood so He could bleed and make a way divine. And so was born the baby who died to make it mine. It's a brilliant song. It captures the theology of the incarnation uh, like nothing I've ever seen. But Jesus was and is the exegesis of God. The Word which revealed God and made His glory known to us, as it's never been known before. But what are we to do with all of this revelation about God that came through Jesus Christ? How are we meant to respond to all of this? There are two ways, really. Both of them are found in verses 9 to 13. The first response is the response of Jesus' own people. The true. What was their response? Um, and this is the Jews to whom he ministered around Jerusalem. It's this. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him. Yet, the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So John is referring here to the historical fact that when Jesus was carrying on his ministry, he was opposed by and ultimately rejected and put to death by his own people. Now on the one hand... Uh, that 's clearly a wrong response, and yet in the providential working of god 's plan, jesus being rejected by his own people became the catalyst for the gospel 's advance outside the boundaries of ethnic Israel and into the rest of the world, which was a good thing, nevertheless, their rejection, however, it might have been, however it might have been providentially used, it still remained what it was a rejection of God's Son. The rejection of the one who came as the seed of the woman in Genesis 3 to crush the seed of the serpent. The rejection of the one who came to fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The rejection of the one who came to give release to the captives and sight to the blind. Interestingly, some have taken issue with John's Gospel and uh, claiming that its portrayal of the Jews in Jesus' day is anti-Semitic. But nothing could be further from the truth. John highlights the Jewish nation's rejection of Jesus, not because he's anti-Semitic, but because he wants and needs to make a distinction between the Jews he's addressing in his own day and those in places, such as those in places like Ephesus, and the Jews among whom Jesus ministered in his life in Jerusalem and Judea. He's portraying the Jewish people in a bad light, not for the purpose of tearing them down, but for the purpose of making sure that the Jews he's trying to reach do not imitate the Jerusalem Jews in their foolishness. Even further, he wants to make sure that his audience does not do as the Jews in Jesus' day did, which was to cling to their Jewish heritage and to proudly put their hopes on... Uh, that, the fact of their Jewish heritage, to save them and make them right and acceptable to God. So that's uh, one response at any rate to the self-revelation of God in Jesus, this response of rejection. The other response to God's self-revelation in Jesus Christ is the one seen in verses 12 to 13. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The response that John's Gospel calls for is not to reject Jesus as his people have done, but to receive him. But what does that mean? What does it mean to receive Jesus? Look back at verse 12. It means to believe in his name. Believe in his name. What does that mean? Well, Simply put, believing in a person's name means receiving and accepting and embracing him as he is. For who he is. Uh, I told you before uh, this illustration about a movie that came out called The Net a number of years ago now, and the basic story was about this woman who had her identity stolen and had actually changed, uh, had been changed electronically, and as the story develops, she's in a number of situations where she's trying to convince people of who she really is and what her real name is, and on a few occasions, people acted as if they believed her and accepted her. that she was who she said she was, but they really didn't. And the character played by Sandra Bullock can see that people are not really believing her, and so she feels rejected because, in fact, she has been rejected. No one will accept that she is who she says she is. The same truth is captured in these verses, obviously, in a more profound way. Receiving Jesus means accepting Him and accepting that He is who He says He is. It means accepting Him as the Son of God. The one who was with God and yet was God at the very beginning. If a person says, I believe in Jesus, but what they mean is, I believe He was a great man, um, then that person really hasn't believed in His name. If a person says, I believe in Jesus, and what they mean is, I believe He was a great teacher and a great example for others to imitate, that person has not believed in Jesus' name. That person has not accepted Him for who He is. Such so-called belief then really is nothing of the sort. It's just another form of rejection dressed up in different clothes. Only those who believe in His name. That is that He's not just Jesus, but Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. The one who is sent by God, as His name means, to save His people from their sins. The one who was sent to undo the effects of the fall and the curse forever. Those who believe in that Jesus are the ones who will be given the right to become children of God. But think a little bit further about that with me and what that means. So we've already said Jesus is the one who came to save his people from their sins. Believing in his name then means believing that. Embracing that truth. Accepting that truth. But in order to fully embrace the truth that Jesus came to save His people from their sins and fully appropriate or appreciate Christ's role as Savior, you've got to receive Him as your Savior. You have to see yourself as one who needs saving. And not just from anything, but from your sins. You may not think of yourself as a person who's particularly sinful or even sinful at all. And if that's true, then you're not alone, as it seems a number of people tend to think more and more that way these days. At the very least, what many people think is that while they sin occasionally, they're not great sinners or even really bad sinners. Uh, That title is reserved for other people, like serial killers and terrorists and oppressive dictators. Those are the really bad people. And what you and I do is another category. It's really not that bad. However, uh, what we're not taking into account with that sort of thinking is that while in God's perspective there are certainly degrees of sin, there is nevertheless no one that is free from sin. Therefore, no one lives perfectly up to God's standards. In fact, no one lives perfectly up to their own standards. No living person gives God the honor or the attention Or the priority that they should or could, and in the end, that reality leaves everybody in the same situation. It's like having two astronauts suited up for an extended trip outside the International Space Station. One of the astronauts, to her dismay, discovers that her spacesuit has several terrible leaks, and if she were to step outside, she'd be without oxygen in less than a minute. The other astronaut, while checking things out, discovers that he has a single small leak in his suit. And so while he would not run out of air as fast as the other astronaut, the reality is that he would still eventually run out and experience the same consequences. And so in the end, it wouldn't really matter whether one suit had a number of huge leaks and the other one had just one tiny one. The final consequences are the same. Clearly, one suit is better than the other. One suit is less damaged, but neither suit is reliable and will not protect their wearers from destruction. It's the same way with degrees of sin. People may differ in the degree of sin in their life, but they're in exactly the same ultimate position before God. The murderer and the slanderer, the bank robber and the woman who lies on her income tax form, All of them ultimately will find themselves in the same position before God. Facing doom unless somebody rescues them. In God's eyes, regardless of the differing types and degrees of sin, they're still sinners. They're all guilty of rejecting Him. They're all guilty of acting as if they live in a universe in which God is not present, or if He is, He's irrelevant. All are guilty of living their lives as if they're not answerable to anyone but themselves. And God, because He's supremely just, will give people exactly what they want. People who in this life live and want to live as if God is not there will get to spend eternity in a place where God cannot be found. That's the reality that the Bible refers to as hell. And it's real. This is what lies behind this statement in Matthew 1, 20-21, where Jesus does say, uh, He's described as the one who came to save His people from their sins. Saving people from their sins means saving them from the very real consequences of their sins. Believing in His name means you believe that Jesus has saved you from the consequences of your sins. Which ultimately would have been you in a Christless and godless eternity. This is where the Christmas story is so important, you see. This is where all the things that we saw earlier about the relationship between Jesus and God and Jesus and humanity come into play. How so? Well, here's how. Ever since Genesis 3, way back in the beginning of the Bible, when this whole thing got started, the first sin in the Garden of Eden, ever since then, the search was on through the rest of Scripture. You could describe the entire plot line of the Bible from Genesis 3 onward, as the search for the one who was going to come and do what was promised in Genesis 3. Ever since Genesis 3, the search was on for the one who would come and pass the test that Adam failed. The one who would be faithful and obedient to God, as Romans 5.17 puts it. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man... to set things up so that his people relate to him by means of a mediator. And he might have done it another way, but he didn't do it another way. That is how he has done it. But because God has so arranged things in that way, it became vitally important. Once our Adam, our first representative, failed, it became vitally important for another mediator to be provided. Another person was needed, both to be the obedient representative that Adam wasn't, and to satisfy the demands of God's righteous anger over the sin that entered into the world through Adam. So ever since Genesis 3, another representative was needed, and this second representative, like the first one, also needed to be human. As an early writer named Anselm put it, Man is the one who wronged God, and must therefore make the wrong right. And yet, that which he needed to do, both the perfect active obedience, and the satisfaction of God's justice. Both of these things were out of reach of any mere man to pull them off. And so while the second representative must be human, it seems he would have to be more than human. An early Christian writer also writes, puts it this way. He says, It would not have been right for the restoration of human nature to be left undone, and it could not have been done unless man paid what was owing to God for sin. But the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both man and God. Thus it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of His person so that He who in His own nature ought to pay and could not should exist in a person who could pay and did. And that person was Christ. That is what. That is why... Christmas happened. This is why we celebrate the incarnation at Christmas. The taking on of human flesh by God's Son in this season. Because it was in and through that crucial event that God worked out a way to satisfy the demands of His holiness and His justice and at the same time demonstrate His grace and kindness and much undeserved but greatly received, gratefully received mercy. And as we've already seen, you can either reject that reality or you can embrace that reality by believing in Jesus' name. That is, that He is who He says He is. And that all of those things are true, that He really did come to save His people from their sins. And that one of the people that He did that for, that needed saving, was you. And it's my sincere hope that you'll embrace that truth if you have not already done so. And that as you immerse yourself this week in the celebration of Christmas in all of its various forms, that you will be drawn back again and again in the midst of all the cultural realities that are attached to Christmas. Uh, My hope is that you'll be drawn back to this one central spiritual reality, and that is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's my hope and prayer that you will remember the deep and rich significance of that. And as you consider it, you'll be led to truly worship the Lord Jesus as you think about those things who became a baby who did go to the cradle but he did it because it was on the way to the cross which was his ultimate destination let's pray together Father in heaven, we do indeed thank you for this event that we celebrate now, this taking on of human flesh, and all that that means, meaning that you could live a life as our mediator, that you could satisfy the demands and the realities of a relationship of covenant faithfulness on our behalf. We thank you, Father, though, that that was not the end of it. That that was sort of a halfway point on to the place you were really fully heading, which was a cross and then an empty tomb. We thank you, Father, that you became uh, like us in order to redeem us. So, Father, help us to remember that, to celebrate your birth with a view to your death, and an even greater view to your resurrection and what that all means. Help us to remember that. Help us, Father, to, to uh, keep our eyes and ears open for opportunities to, to, to talk about that with others, to share that with family and friends, to uh, be a witness to the light that you brought into the world through your Son, Jesus. And in that way, be a light ourselves uh, and be your ambassadors during this season. We pray, Father, that you would give us that great privilege of doing that. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We will now take up an offering for those who want to make a contribution to support the work of this church or the various ministries that we support through this church.